Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Audible has hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a variety of genres, you can go over there and get yourself a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You got to spell out other people in the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Get a free audiobook download on the house and, you know, it makes uh, your life better. You're on your way to work. You're listening to a book. You're on the train. You're listening to a book. You're running. Uh, through the neighborhood, hopefully not being chased. You're listening to a book. These are audio books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a room with no script. This is you, wherever you are, imagining me in a room, if that makes sense. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I'm in Los Angeles, as usual. And my guest today is Steve Almond. Uh, he's been on the show before. It's not uh, it's not normal for me to have somebody on the show in repeat fashion, but I'm a huge fan of Steve's. Uh, I love talking to him. I feel like we always have good conversations. Uh, I think he's a superbly talented writer, and he's also great in conversation. So uh, I, I have him back on the program today. I think you're going to really enjoy it. His new book is called Against Football, and it's uh, it's available imminently from Melville House. And uh, it bills itself, I think, appropriately as a manifesto. Uh, the title says it all, Against Football. And uh, for those of you out there, uh, many of you, I'm imagining, uh, bookish in nature, might not be the biggest sports fans. Uh, I hope you'll stay put and listen to this. Uh, for those of you out there who are sports fans, and I should say, too, that I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush or, or deal in stereotypes uh, too much, because I know that a lot of us out here uh, in book world uh, happen to be rabid football fans too. The two things are not mutually exclusive, as you'll hear Steve and I discuss. But this conversation uh, is for everybody, I think, except for small children. <laughs> uh, it's for people who like football, and uh, it might depress you a little bit to hear Steve's arguments. I think Steve's arguments depress Steve. 
to be frank with you. But for those of you who do not like football, who don't care for it, uh, this conversation might help clarify uh, to you why people are into it. And it might help uh, clarify why you're not into it. So I, I just really hope uh, that the football thing doesn't throw you because I think as Steve book, uh, Steve's book demonstrates, you know, the arguments that he's making, the critique that he's making when he uh, delves into football in America. We're not talking soccer here. We're talking American football with the helmets and the tackling. Uh, the arguments that he's making, uh, you know, are uh, dealing with broader trends in our culture. It's about more than just football. It's about who we are as a uh, society, and it's about what ills uh, the American soul. And I, I don't think it's too grandiose to say that. So uh, I really had a great time talking with Steve. I really enjoyed this book, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Steve Almond, and his new book, available uh, soon from uh, Melville House, any day now, is called Against Football. Yeah, so, I mean, basically this is the book that you are writing in your head all the time and that anybody else who has an addiction to, because that's what it is, frankly. If you described it and you didn't say it's football, they'd say, oh, it's something you do alone, you sneak off, it's compulsion, you perseverate <laughs> about it, you think about it all the time, you have an irrational sense that it really is meaningful in your life, even though objectively it isn't. That's just addiction right, right there. So... Uh, and I have had that intensely for 40 years, since I was five or six years old, towards uh, a lot of sports, but especially towards football. And at the same time, in the last two or three years, I've felt a creeping sense of complicity and just dirtiness about it. And it's not just a result of the fact that it's consuming a form of entertainment that causes brain damage, although that is disturbing, and the fact that my mom had a major insult to her brain and was in a delirium, gave me a very first-hand look uh, at what families, players, and families of players are dealing with. Well, wait, what, that, what, what happened to your mom? Well, a couple of years ago, um, she, well, not a couple of years ago, I can tell you exactly what happened, Brad. A year ago, um, uh, a couple of days after my third <clears throat> child was born, I got a call from my uh, brother saying something's happened to mom and she my mom is a real battler but she'd had a couple of cancers and uh, it, what happened is that she went into a delirium and um, I immediately flew out to California at where she is and visited her in the hospital and tried to help my dad for a couple of days because she had gone in very short order from being a very high-powered a psychoanalyst, you know, doctor, Yale educated, you know, an incredibly, you know, an author of two beautiful books, like a really incredibly smart, sharp person to in a delirium. When I arrived at the hospital, she was unable to um, recognize, she recognized me sometimes, but other times she wasn't able to recognize me. She didn't know where she was, why she was there. Her sense of self was gone. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, your, your self resides in your heart and in your soul, and it's bullshit, man. It, it's in your brain. That's who you are. And when that brain is gone or it's diminished, you're gone and diminished. And that was totally apparent to me, not to get all intense on you, but that was totally apparent in those two or three days. The miraculous thing, knock on every fucking wood surface around, is that it turned out that she was in an acute dementia and she has since recovered. 
Um, oh, good. And it was, but the doctors felt, and my dad and I and everybody around us just basically thought, shit, this is the new normal, is that Barbara Almond is not going to be able to, is, is not, doesn't, isn't going to be Barbara Almond. She's not fully going to know who she is and where she is and, and what life is. Um, and in fact, fortunately, that was not the case. But what, what I saw when I was out there for those two or three days was absolutely heartbreaking and terrifying. And it just puts things in context. And I think it coalesced with a broader sense that whatever it is that I'm involved with when I go see football games and watch them and think about them is not it has deep meaning and beauty, and I was interested in trying to explore that, and the book is partly about the game's allure and what makes it so fascinating. But there's also a lot of unwholesome stuff going on. And the further I looked into it, it went way further than concussions and, and brain trauma. It went into real questions of the way in which, in my own life, uh, you know, violence uh, and, and struggles around homophobia and sexuality and um, the, my own complicity in uh, sort of the culture's militarism and the kind of nihilistic greed and the racism that is just rampant and that I think football is where we go when, because we haven't worked out a lot of shit about that stuff. Yeah. And it really fosters and enables a lot of the most pathological aspects of American culture. And I don't say that with any great joy. I'm not trying to shit on anybody's fandom. I, you know, I am, I am in my own shit bathtub sitting there going, why do I want to watch the fucking preseason game of the Oakland Raiders? That's right. the last thing I should do. Right. But, you know, when you're a fan, like Exley writes, like DeLillo writes, like anybody who really is inside it, it's deep. All these things that we are obsessed with are not just junk, uh, you know, that fills our minds and hearts. They are the purest spiritual expressions of who we are. And so I was trying to write a book that both identifies why we get so bound up, mostly men, but also women, in this one particular game, what role it has played in our cultural history, and also all the corruptions and moral hazards that people just don't want to look at, and I didn't want to look at, um, but that are still there and are really operating and are uh, you know, causing individuals and America as a culture to think and feel in a lot of shitty ways. Well, it's, you know, and it's, it's, there's a quote and I, it, this is, it, this is so terrible of me, but I, I can't remember who said it and I always paraphrase it. Um, but it's stuck with me and it, it's basically that America used to be baseball and now it's football and right. it's always really resonated. And there's something about the ascent of football to the top, uh, echelon of our, you know, of the culture and the cultural imagination that seems to mirror you know, this sense that the, that America, uh, is in some sort of spiritual crisis <laughs> or moral decline or all of the above, you know, there seems to be something to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at it. It's decadent. It is decadent to consume as entertainment, um, a sport that is inherently violent and that we know now we can't deny it. We know it. Even the NFL lawyers know it causes brain damage and there is something decadent about that there's something gladiatorial and roman and like yeah you know what we're just going to make these shitty decisions because we have the power and underneath the power the deep crazy insecurity that causes us to need to make these decisions and i'm not saying that as somebody who's outside of the system i i'm the same way i feel the same compulsion but 
when I'm there watching a game, there is this other voice in me that's that's just saying, dude, this is screwed up. You've got kids. You've got, you know, a wife that needs better taken care of. You've got important work that you need to do. There's all this empathy, and, you know, that is just not in the equation when I'm watching a football game at all. In fact, football is the refuge that I seek to get away from that, those duties and responsibilities, that morality. I'm like, fuck it, dude, just give me a ball game. <laughs> not any kind of ball game, but like a football game. Right. NFL. There's something about the NFL. I mean, I guess college football too. But... Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, you know, the, the thing that, I, uh, that I'm fascinated by and that you articulate really well in the book is this sort of narcotic experience that a football game, uh, you know, specifically seems to deliver. Because in my own experience, what I find, uh, which mirrors yours, uh, your experience, is that there's something like deeply, you know, relaxing and almost like uh, meditative. That's probably the wrong word, but you, I think you get what I'm saying about yeah. being in the game when you're watching it. Um, you know, it operates on a person's intellect. The strategy is really intoxicating, but at the same time, uh, that the hollow feeling after the game is done, very similar to a hangover. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's the Doritos of, of sports. You know, it has been perfectly engineered to hit the bliss point. And one of the things that's interesting is like, you know, so this book's going to be out. And, and, you know, the world will react to it in whatever way or won't that they wish to. But my concern was like, oh, my God, I want to make sure that women get this book. Like, I don't want this just to be, hey, guys, I wrote about football. You know, like I want women to um, read the book and understand it and respond to it. And one of the things that's been the most interesting is that um, women really do, and they read it very quickly, and they uh, it helps explain to them like I've gotten several very long notes from women basically saying like, thank you for helping me to understand that narcotic that's in my house with my sons or husband or boyfriend, whatever it is, you know, where it has, the game has this unbelievable allure and we wouldn't be, you know, people wouldn't like boxing was really uh, the number one sport in America at the turn of the you know 20th century. It was the number one and it was just too brutal and it didn't supply enough upside for people to be able to deal with the fact that it was two men trying to knock each other senseless, right? So it has become, you know, it's still a niche, it's still there, and it's very important to some people, but it's a fringe sport. What football has managed to do is really 
um, normalize violence and make an incredibly violent activity uh, seem completely all-American and acceptable. And it's because football's also supplying all this other stuff. So if I was somebody who didn't get football and didn't understand its beauty and allure and how remarkably engineering and engineered it is, like how dense the strategy is, how many different contingencies can occur on a single play, how amazing it is that in one moment, uh, you know, something that looks like a dull routine, just, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust can explode into this miraculous moment. Barry Sanders makes the right move at the right time, and suddenly he hits an opening, and, it, you know, you're running just right alongside with him going, oh, my God, that is the miracle of our bodies. That's that just is the, 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 the childish pleasure that we have in this basic run, avoid, tackle, catch, throw, leap, like all these primal pleasures that we have as a species that we've had to sort of tame and put in offices and all that shit. Like, it's real. And football is the one sport that has been able to um, replicate that in a way that is so fascinating as a narrative as a form of narrative, football is sensational, and that's the reason that you have really smart people who love it, even though morally they shouldn't. Blah, blah, blah. It's not just a bunch of brutes. It is the most complicated, ornate, beautiful uh, game that there is, and it's also the most primal and aggressive, and that's why it is more popular than any other American sport by a factor of about four or five at this point. Well, no, you know, it's like you, you, there's a great line in the book where you say that it unites eggheads and meatheads, and right. uh, that sums it up because, you know, I, you know I'm, I don't think I'm a meathead, uh, but yet I can be there in a sports bar watching a game on Sunday, like screaming with some guy who's like got the jersey on and like the, the headband and he's like eating like yeah. a, you know, a burger the size of his face or whatever. And um, there's a certain but interestingly, interestingly, Brad, I mean, that, that's the other thing that it does is in a time that we're fragmented and especially sort of culturally, racially, you know, uh, socioeconomically, it is this lingua franca for for America. I mean, sports operates in that way generally, but football does absolutely cut across all those superficial dividers and provides this common language, mostly for men to communicate. But that guy that you're describing really like every human being is really fucking smart and the thing is that he's not just going oh my team win go in <laughs> end zone he gets probably in a way that's as deep or deeper than you do exactly how the safety blitz has been negated by you know the quarterback pulling an extra guy into pass protection and exactly what have to happen when the wide receiver in the slot broke off his route and you know you see what i mean like sure, yeah. he could probably explain to you as deeply as you could all the ornate shit that's happening on a football field and in a weird way it's like that's what is amazing about it is that it's now you like got me like jonesing like drooling to watch a football game but you know so much stuff is happening at the same time and you don't have to be like book smart to get it in fact it's very primal and basic this you know it, it it's something that most guys just recognize from having played tackle the pill or any kind of sport um so yeah i mean you know I didn't want to write a book that was looking down on football. I was I wanted to write a book that was looking at, you know, sort of football that's all around me and trying to say what does it mean? Like what it, what are its allures and then also unfortunately, tragically, what horrible shit is attached to that? 
Well, yeah, and I, you know, I, I read something uh, somewhere not too long ago that's uh, that, that stayed with me about football and its allure, particularly among men. Uh, you know, where the writer was talking about how disenfranchised people feel, how disconnected or powerless they feel um, with yep. respect to like our political system. And you think about like the obsessiveness with which football fans and sports fans in general pour over statistics and read box scores and watch the draft. And, you yep. know, and like if you think about, well, what if we put this amount of energy into like, you know, trying to figure out why we're here, what the universe is, paying attention to our like our local Congress, getting involved like in our in civic right. life somehow at the local level. Like it's an incredible amount of mental energy that we expend on this. And yeah. it seems to reflect, uh, you know, I, I think powerlessness. This gives us a way to win or something, you know, something there's a line in the book where you say it's like, you know, you where you're in the bar watching a game and you, you look around and suddenly you realize that. Um, you know, people are, you know, they're cheering for the Raiders or they're cheering for their team, but they're, they're also cheering for themselves. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of reasons that people watch sports and watch football in particular. And part of the reason that there are two or three chapters early in the book that are dedicated to my experience internally as a fan is because it's what my nephew would call complicated. It's not simple. It's not like, well, so we just want to win or we just want to connect to the Neanderthal within us who was allowed to be aggressive and violent and, you know, we just want to have dominion. There's also, we want to be part of a tribe. We want to feel a sense of knowing who we are in the world. We want moral simplicity. We want closure. We want a sense of winning or losing. We want uh, a narrative that gives us the unscripted pleasure that popular culture is almost always incapable of supplying. We want something that's a pure meritocracy, where greatness is on display, American exceptionalism. We want regeneration through violence. I mean, there's all these things. That's why I say it's sort of the Doritos of, of, of you know, the athletic world. It's hitting all these different bliss points at the same time. And so when we're watching a game, it's not a simple activity. It's not... You know, it's we want it to, you know, we sort of use it to retreat from a certain kind of complication and a certain sort of, I don't know, the sense that our lives don't really cohere, they don't have meaning, we can't attach meaning to them, there's a bunch of emotional and moral responsibilities that we don't want to deal with, but actually, when you really break down what football is supplying and why it's so exciting and why it gets so deep into the bloodstream, it's because there's a whole bunch of shit happening all at once. And that's why I'm interested, like when I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was miserable and trying to write and, you know, failing in, uh, invariably and being a jerk and other people were being jerks. And it was like the short version, the two-word version, I was in grad school. There it is. <laughs> so, but, but what was fascinating is that I didn't have a TV. And so I would go and I would just go up to the campus and just try to find a football game. And I think that everything, I was just really floating around in my own enemy in, in, in those couple of years. But football, even a game I didn't give a shit about, even two teams that I wasn't deeply invested in, I could watch in a way that I do not feel about any other sport. It, it's because the game inherently, the way it's been engineered, the way it's evolved, has so many different things happening at the same time and is so inherently compelling for anybody who is even a little bit of an athlete. Um, and there are people in my life, not a lot, but there are people who don't get it at all. And um, I think women have a really hard time with it because it just, 
like you have to have a certain um, sort of geeky competitiveness to plug into it. And um, so there are people who just don't aren't interested in that. But most of my pals are basically in the same boat we are. They really love it, and they know that it's really, you know, not doing good things. For us as individuals, and as you point out, for the culture, I think about that all the time. Like, imagine how many resources would be freed up, psychological, emotional, intellectual resources, if we somehow didn't have football. You know, and if people were forced to do, you know, stuff with their family and stuff with their church <laughs> and stuff with their political system and their local, you know, and and their, you know, charities that they might get involved with, volunteer work that they might do, connecting to, you know, their, their friendships more deeply, blah, 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 their spiritual lives. But that's not, you know, I'm not, like, I didn't write the book to try to somehow put that genie back in the bottle. I just want those of us who... Um, are really deeply involved in the game to think about it and ask these questions and have a big conversation about it. Because it's really ridiculous if you step back from it and say, we have this activity that is the biggest thing in America culturally, and we almost never really think about what it means. Right, right. Well, and it's funny, too, because I think there's a certain segment of the football fan population and i think you and i would count ourselves among them who are grappling with this stuff um you know privately you're now doing it publicly Um, but there's a part of me like i'll I'll, like go to the sports bar alone and i'm not the guy who wears the jersey and i sort of take pride in that quietly like i'm not that bad you know (laughs) like i'm (laughs) right i'm here to like you know i'm cerebral about it i don't like scream very much i some you know if there's a big play sometimes i will but you know um, and so there's a line in the book. Again, I, I keep quoting it because there's so much good stuff in there. But you talk about um, reality television, of which I think professional sports and the NFL um, is, a, you know, it's like the most popular reality show going. It's great entertainment uh, on a certain level and it's gripping and all the rest. But, you know, we maintain a, a certain posture of ironic distance uh, to avoid the corruption of our spiritual arrangements. So, right. you know, it's a way of me, for me to kind of distance myself from whatever... Uh, darker conversation I might be entertaining in the back corner of my mind, you know, and I, I think that, um, you know, that's a big part of it. it. You know, football is obviously at the at the top of the heap, but just reality television in general and the way that we relate to our entertainment as a culture seems to have changed uh, in my lifetime in a significant way. And like that is a conversation that I think uh, is worth having, like in the context of football. Yes, but I think more broadly speaking as well. Yeah, I I find that I do best when I sort of, you look at one thing and then it's everything, you know. So for me, it was amazing that there wasn't a book that, like, I, you know, there's Fans Note and End Zone and, you know, there are books that are about football, um, but there wasn't a book really that was saying, like, what does this mean from the inside? What does it mean? And um, my overall sense, like, when I go to, a, you know, watch a football game, like, I think I'm the most pathetic because I actually – foster the illusion as you're describing that I'm like somehow more in control of it or more noble or more thoughtful. And that's like the biggest con of all. Like (laughs) I'm just sitting there thinking I'm somehow better than somebody else because I'm less in a certain way. I'm just more deluded. You know, when I think of my own, I'm just sitting there like other guys are bellowing at the ref and, you know, sort of they can't, I'm like, they're like sloppy drunks, but we're like the quiet drunk. 
it's like quietly getting hammered alone but telling <laughs> ourselves we're not drunk. Like that's how sad we are. Well, no, it's well, like it's the intellectual secret vice, right? You know, that's a yeah. That's the thing, and and it's sort of. I mean, think about it, dude. It was like Nixon and Hunter S. Thompson. You know, everything that they have to talk about, and those those two alpha dudes who come from completely different places. Um, but are in a certain way just sort of mirror images of one another. What do they talk about when they have their one conversation? They fucking talk about football, and they immediately find a way. I mean, one way of looking at this that's a little bit less, like, preachy and negative is like, okay, well, dudes have need to be able to relate to one another, and they don't feel ready because of the way we're socialized, whatever else, uh, to, you know, our bioevolutionary you know, heritage men have trouble saying, "Let's have a salad" or "Let's go shopping." <laughs> so the thing that they're able to do, I will is, have, I will have a salad with you, Steve. If, you know, next yeah, time. Well, I'm... that's fine, but you know what we'll end up doing is just trying to fucking find a football game. Like that, you know, I'd be like, "Yeah, the salad's cool," but so, at any rate, the, the um, you know, that's a, that to me is a fascinating cultural moment because, and and you know, like Nixon as a figure, like it's so perfect to me that on the one hand he was this craven guy who's bombing the shit out of Cambodia and just, you know, uh, uh, just corrupt to the core, just this pure guy who's just obsessed with power and it's blinded him to his own personal corruptions. At the same time, he's sitting there like just waiting outside the booth, you know, where Frank Gifford is interviewing somebody thinking, I wonder if Frank Gifford will remember me. It's like Exley. Like, it's that, like, it's like Exley, <laughs> right? In yeah. like, you know, writ large. And, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, is that when it comes down to, um, you know, why people get into this and the, and how it, you know, it bridges the divide between people, men in particular, uh, you know, we can't pass up the opportunity, I think, to talk about uh, how fathers and sons, you know, oh, yeah. use football and use sports in general as a way to communicate. This is like so the case with me. Um, not only with my dad, but with all the men in my extended family, uncles, like when the family gets together, like this is how we talk. This is the language that we use. Yeah, well, it's something that you, I mean, and on the one hand, you could be like, oh, well, how pathetic they're, you know, so unevolved. And it's like, well, you know what? That's just where a lot of men are. And, you know, you talked before, Brad, you were saying like, well, you know, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what football means and I do have a sense, I do have a certain reluctance and so forth. I actually think every fan knows at some level that it's a corrupt arrangement. And like a lot of where you hear that most powerfully is in sports punditry, you know, the TV and radio shows that are basically, basically the cable news of sports that's grown up, which is so, I don't know if you're like a closet addict of that, but I'm a closet addict of, you know, sports talk radio and all the TV shows that are basically like, you know, Fox news on sports you know what I mean? Like well, Stephen Colin, a. Colin, and, Colin Coward and the whole thing. Right. All those guys. And the last chapter of the book is really about the sports media and the way in which they normalize things and sort of act as the moral arbiters. But what's so fascinating and poignant about listening to those guys and listening to their listeners is they know it's dirty. They know that blaming Ray Rice for being a bad dude or Roger Goodell for failing to discipline him for, you know, knocking out his girlfriend. Like they know that there's a deeper, you know, molten core of misogyny that runs through the NFL and our, uh, and, and our need to watch football. And that like 
Ray Rice is a part and parcel of Jameis Winston and the fact that he, he, there's physical evidence that, uh, you know, that he raped or that indicates that he raped a classmate and neither the school that he went to nor uh, the police really ever investigated that. You're, ta- you're talking about the, the Heisman Trophy winner from Florida State. Correct. Sorry, I should, yes. The Heisman Trophy winner from Florida State. And, you know, there's no doubt if you read the reporting that um, he should have been much more seriously investigated and, in fact, probably arrested because there was considerable physical uh, evidence and trauma and, you know, just stuff you look at, like, just through the lens of objective police work and you go, yeah, 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 no, that's not right. Or Steubenville, Ohio, where you had a couple of high school football stars sexually assault, uh, you know, a a drunk girl and show it to all their friends on social media and the community came to their defense. Well, yeah, I mean, well, it's, I was going to say with with Winston at Florida state, like not only is there the rape case, but then he was like shoplifting crab legs or whatever. And, you know, obviously like a much uh, less serious uh, thing, but no, no suspension from the team. Like, I mean, down in the, down in the, down in the South, I mean, these players are just held up. It's at a different level. My family's from the South, so I get the whole SEC thing. And it, it truly is like bordering on religion down there. No, it's religion. It's not bordering. It's actually more powerful. <laughs> I just put it right there. But the, the larger point is that, you know, the folks in the, in, in the media are involved in, on the one hand, this thing that sort of I could be very preachy about and say, oh, well, they're so deluded. But it's actually kind of poignant. They have got to figure out a way to scapegoat over and over and over again rather than really facing the inherent moral hazards of football. They have to. It's, it's actually poignant. And when you listen to the callers, it's the same thing. They're just grasping at moral straws to say, like, yeah, 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 you know, it's, it's that greedy player. No, actually, the NCAA and the NFL are engines of nihilistic greed. They are a feudal system. They are the definition of a cartel. And they extort, you know, essentially extort cities and politicians uh, to provide taxpayer money that ends up getting siphoned directly from the public till and into the pockets of billionaire owners. And we support that as fans. We are the sponsors. We're the reasons that they have that power. Well, and know, can you, I stop? Can I stop you there? Actually, sure. can, can you can you illustrate that? Um, you know, like how how exactly? Can you can you point to an example? Sure. Yeah. So, for instance. Um, in um, in there's a long you know there's a long chapter in the book that goes over all of this stuff. So the first place to start is like the NFL is is um, tax exempt. Okay, so they have tax exempt status as a business association, as if you could join the NFL. Like you and me, Brad, are just going to join the NFL. <laughs> you need like you know two billion dollars to be a member of that particular business organization. But beyond that. What's happened is that franchises, like, look at what happened to poor Cleveland. You know, the, 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 a t- a, an owner knows that he can move to another city, Baltimore, that's desperate to get a team because Baltimore's team moved to Indianapolis because Indianapolis basically said, yes, of course our taxpayers will build you a $300 million stadium and we won't charge you any rent for it and we're not going to insist on any of the proceeds and we'll, you know, those can go directly to you and we'll provide infrastructure So the Colts leave Baltimore for Indianapolis, and then Art Modell saying, you know, I really am not getting as good a deal here as I I want, and I need to move to a new city where I'll have a much better deal. And that's exactly what happens. And Baltimore says, we'll build you a new stadium and we'll, you can play there rent-free. And that's going to be done mostly by the taxpayers. And they're not going to enjoy any of the profits 
of that event, of that, of that uh, stadium that their own dollars built. In fact, those are going to be funneled directly to the owner. And here's the great con of it. The, you know, the, the Baltimore Ravens are now worth immediately, the moment they went from Cleveland to Baltimore, are worth like 10 times as much as they were worth before. Because on paper, they have zero rent, and they, you know, they've got a, a rabid fan base. They are sold out because it's a new city. You know, the city's desperate for uh, a football team. And the owners know this. They're like a cartel. They get this. I mean, why do you think, Brad, that Jacksonville and Carolina got franchises? Do you think it's because those are the two cities that make the most sense because got the biggest media market or whatever? No, not at all. It's because they offered the best deal to the NFL. And, you know, Cleveland wound up, the taxpayers of Cleveland wound up paying a blue fortune to get that team back, not just to build them a stadium, but, you know, a taxpayer expense. And this is all money that would be going to things like, oh, I don't know, hiring teachers, paying them more, <laughs> right. uh, hiring, hiring police officers, uh, you know, fixing infrastructure. This isn't some insignificant sum of money. This is, in New Orleans, it's a billion dollars to build that stadium, a billion dollars in New Orleans. You don't think they have more civically responsible uses for that much money that is coming out of the public till? So this is this is a bigger thing, and it's easy to say, oh, those greedy owners or those you know greedy uh, football players. That's really a proxy. We, the fans, are responsible for that dysfunction, and we are the reason that the, the owners have so much power in the first place. You know, Caroline and or Jacksonville. Those cities, the taxpayers, whether they support football or have any interest in, or, in it or not, they gave a tremendous amount of their taxes to, uh, you know, beautiful new stadiums, which they were essentially rent, almost rent-free. And, you know, the same thing happened to my Oakland Raiders. They moved down to L.A. because the terms were good, and then when Oakland got desperate enough and they didn't like the deal down in L.A., they moved back to Oakland. They're still paying off the bonds. Uh, that they incurred to move the team back to Oakland. And it's the biggest con game going, and it's completely unregulated. Nobody says there's a real problem with this system because what can you say? We choose as fans to ignore that or to find convenient scapegoats. And that's what the sports media does over and over and over again is try to insulate fans from, from their full complicity, whether it's the nihilistic deed or the uh, the overt misogyny or the concussions, brain damage, their job essentially is to make it okay for us to root for football. And wow. I suggest that anybody who says it's not okay is unpatriotic or, you know, all these other things, I'll wind up getting called here in a few, few weeks. <laughs> right. Well, and uh, I should say, too, you know, like I think uh, on a parallel line, you, uh, you know, you talk in the book about how football has become – the leading signifier of our institutions of higher learning. Like this is how colleges uh, sell themselves to prospective students. This is how yeah. they, they center themselves around their football teams. And it's, it's reality. It's stunning when you think about it. Well, it's, it's stunning at the college level. And then it's stunning when you think about in, in the high school, the high school level and researchers out in Purdue, uh, you know, Purdue university, they put these sensors inside the helmets of, you know, I'm sure you read this chapter, the, the, the sensors inside the helmets of these um, high school football teams, 
and, you know, by Earth, and they basically wanted to sort of see what's the impact of concussions. And they so they set up, you know, a bunch of kids who've gotten concussions, and then they need a control group where kids haven't gotten concussions and do this cognitive testing after you know, after each week. And what do they find? The kids in the control group show diminished brain function, and it gets worse and worse and worse as they go through the season. So that by the end of the season, they essentially have no function, brain function, significant brain function in their frontal lobes the area that's responsible for moral reasoning, for instance. And you sit there and go, well, wait a second. Take a step back here, America. They're in high school. Their job, the job of our educational system, is to make people smarter, to make their brain activity higher, not less. And you say, well, okay, but, um, you know, it's football. It instills all these great values and so forth. And I'm like, you know what, as a fan, you know what fans want? They want entertainment. They're not sitting there saying, boy, I'm, I'm so glad that that tough end has been instilled with perseverance and discipline. <laughs> They're like, catch the ball, dude, or I'm going to fucking boo. Right. You know, so it's, it's this big con that America's pulling on itself. And, and at the same time, it's this beautiful, amazing game. You know, one of the, one of the things I struggled with is that a friend of mine great friend of mine, sports pals from years ago, you know, has a son who is incredibly devoted to football and has managed to get a scholarship to a Division One program. And, you know, I, I emailed him in the course of writing this book and was, I've been very anguished about it and, and he is as well. And it's not like he never thought about any of this stuff. But this weird thing takes over. And as a parent, I'm sure you understand this. On the one hand, he's going, there's no way I should allow my son to be able to play this game. It's bad for for him. He he could get seriously injured. His brain function could be diminished years down the line. He could get uh, he could have you know cognitive difficulties much sooner than he would otherwise. Like I'm I'm crazy as a parent to do this. But on the other hand, he's a dad, and his son has been brought alive by his his being great at this one thing and his son is more disciplined and he gets up at 6:30 in the morning and goes off to practice and he's very close to his teammates and that means everything to him he's become a leader he's developed in certain ways and more to the point the kid loves it and you know that's not an easy argument when your kid really if your kid finds something that they love and they're really good at and it means the world to them it's very hard as a parent to say well but actually it's bad for you and blah 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 right you know, well well I mean this that like- argument well, and I think you could you could uh, extrapolate that point uh, to like the level of the NFL, where you'll often hear people in the sports media, or you'll hear people, you know, fans at bars or whatever, talking about how the players get paid a king's ransom, which they do, uh, you know, provided they are able to stay in the league for long enough and, and succeed, um, and, yeah. and and they know what they're getting into. That's sort of like the pat answer whenever anybody brings up, uh, you know, brain damage or the risks involved. You know, they're getting paid. Oh, yeah. They're getting paid through the nose they're multimillionaires, and right. uh, they have to be smart enough to understand that that they're running risk and and, and right. to that you say what i say you know what you watch them get brain damage as a form of entertainment so quit talking about their greed and start talking about what is it in you that decides that your entertainment is more important because the reason that they get paid all that money is because of dudes like us Okay, that we we are the market. We are the sponsors. None of it, Brad, from the high school level, from Pop Warner to high school to college to the NFL, none of it works unless there are people like us who say we love it and we want more of it and we'll pay for it. 
and we'll give our minds and hearts and our wallets over to it. That's the bottom line. I've heard this line so many times. It is. It's the default line. It's like, well, but these guys are adults and they know better. And it's like, yep, they are. But that's not really the question here. The question is, why are you okay with consuming as a form of entertainment a sport in which guys get brain damaged? And furthermore, why is it that the culture has created a system where somehow we feel like football is this noble path for the unsavable, those lost boys, in parentheses, almost all poor, many African-American, like, you know, The Blind Side, the Michael Lewis uh, bestseller, and he's a wonderful writer and a really smart guy, but I reviewed that book way back then, and I was shocked that he was never stepping back from the situation and saying, the only reason that this rich white family is rescuing, quote unquote, this kid is because he is a giant person who has athletic talent. If he wasn't a giant person with athletic talent, he would be the other 999,000 poor kids of color who don't get rescued and for whom we don't set up any kind of real system of opportunity. So we just put them in the old time capsule in jail or, you know, or they end up working a marginal job and, you know, living under the poverty line. Do you see what I mean? You said players get a king's ransom. Well, that's right, Brad, because they're our kings. But interestingly, they're, you know, they're the kings from the underclass. They're the guys who somehow are able to rise up and we look at them and we spend all this time worshiping them and, you know, literally paying them. But what the big, you know, the chapter about race is really about saying, well, wait a second. When I was, you know, spent a lot of time in Liberty City, this very poor, huge, poor neighborhood north of Miami, or it's actually technically Miami, it's sort of the north part of Dade County. It was like, well, yes, maybe there were one or two uh, uh, young kids who would wind up being great college players, and maybe one out of every 20,000 would wind up in the NFL and be a celebrity, and we'd all focus on him and his wonderful story, the Richard Sherman, he somehow escaped Compton, oh my God, this is the American (laughs) dream. And underneath that, it's a fucking crock. Underneath that is the fact that we still have economically vulnerable neighborhoods that somehow believe that football is 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 a viable solution. It's not. You know what I mean? It's a crock. And I think we we kind of use that's another way in which I think football functions is as this um, sort of this place where we can play out all of these class and racial pathologies in ways that are very, very twisted. And since I mentioned Richard Sherman, uh, right, the cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, he's this guy who, you know, there was there was a you know months and months of commentary about how brash he was and how over the top and, you know, how dare he like, you know, hang out with any of his old friends from Compton who might be gang members or, you know, be somehow aware of gang activity. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like, that's where football players come from. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. They don't come from nice little well-trimmed suburbs because parents in nice little well-trimmed suburbs have the kids growing up in those places have opportunities to do lots of different things. They don't see football, athletic achievement, their bodies to be sacrificed as their golden ticket. That's a pathology that is unique to, you know, the economically vulnerable neighborhoods in America. And 
you know, the way that plays out and how unexamined it is, is to me one of the sort of big heartbreaking aspects of this. You know, it's basically if you sort of look at football and you look at sort of the way it functions in the culture, to me it's essentially very similar to crack. It is something that is a dangerous ticket out for a small number of, you know, for a small number of young kids and teens, and they run a great risk. It's something that's incredibly addictive. You know, all of us whiteies from the suburb are essentially, you know, sort of driving in. When we watch it turn on the football game, we're sort of there going, okay, yeah, give me my crack. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm venturing into this dark, violent place and give it to me, man. Yeah. And, you know, without any real interest in, you know, any of the, uh, the character, the intellect of any of these players, we don't give a shit about that stuff. That is absolute crap. Just run and jump a little bit higher, knock the ball away, knock the shit out of the opposing player, and we'll give you your millions. What a corrupt arrangement. I mean, it's <laughs> completely dehumanizing in all directions. I'm sorry, dude. I'm, I'm sorry. Not, I'm like, I, know I'm crawling, bummer, but... I know I'm crawling under my desk with my microphone right now, just going fully, fe- going fully fetal. But, um, you know, it's, you know it's, it's a very persuasive argument. It's hard to argue against that because you're describing... Well, think about it. You, you were talking about the South. I mean, think about how crazy it is. No, I was just going to say, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, you, you hit me with it, man, because you, you you got family from the South, so maybe you've got some insights that I don't. But I think about the sort of the racial pathologies of the SEC, and it just makes my mind spin. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, is that, like, you know, when they're outside of the stadium in their daily lives, there's, you know, racism is obviously alive and well down there, and you have all these white football fans um, who are, you know, who comprise the majority of uh, the people in the stands on any given Saturday, you know, in the, uh, in the college football realm. And you, you got to think to yourself, like so many of these people, uh, and I don't know percentages, you know, I, I, I can't speak to exactly how many, but you got to believe down in the South that there are a lot of people who have um, a, a very ugly interpretation of race. And yet, you know, they're happy to go out on Saturday and sit in the stadium with their flask of bourbon or whatever and scream bloody murder for these people of color down there on the field, uh, you know, knocking the shit out of each other. And Well, but it's complicated because you, you, you're right. Some of that might be happening, but they also are in this kind of weird thrall, like they worship these players. Yeah. And so there's this weird, but, you know, it, it, I go through this series of questions, none of which I, like, have a perfect answer for, but I think they're worth asking, like, is football in some ways, all athletics, but football in particular, since it's the biggest sport that we have and the most violent, is it in some ways a form of reparations? Is this how we make ourselves feel okay about the fact that people of color and specifically African-American have been completely fucked over for their entire history in this country and are still fucked over is by like handing a few of them who can jump the highest, who can, you know, who are the strongest and most, uh, you know, sort of physically beautiful and talented. We just hand them millions. But then actually, after having handed them millions, you know what we do? We vilify them. We say they're greedy. We, you know, talk about them. That's that's what talk radio, sports talk radio is, is basically not all, but a lot of it is a bunch of white, wimpy dudes talking shit about big African-American guys, right? That's a lot of what it is when you really boil it down and you look at it just through a racial lens. So is it in a certain way 
do we purchase as fans the right to carry around all these fucked up racial attitudes? Is it a way for us to avoid a more honest discussion about uh, the, the racial history of this country? Why in the South is there such rabid, you know, rabid interest? And why in the South specifically are the teams actually a greater percentage of the players are African-American in the SEC and in the South. There's got to be something going on. That's not just some coincidence that the place where slavery happened is somehow set up this huge educational slash, you know, economic industry in which we are literally judging African-Americans in the same way that somebody would judge them at a slave auction based on how high they can jump, how strong they are, that's purely about their physical attributes and has nothing to do with the content of their character. Uh-huh. I mean, it is just crazy when you really look at it. And I know it's uncomfortable to talk about this stuff, and I'm not saying everybody on earth is racist, but I actually am saying everybody on earth is racist. Everybody. The people of color, the you know, whiteies, everybody is carrying around all this crazy stuff. And it finds its expression I think very purely in situations like the, you know, sort of college football in the South. I just, you know, just go ahead and look at the combine, the NFL combine. What is it that they call the people who run the teams and economically? They're owners. <laughs> Don't you think that's weird? <laughs> oh my God, it's so depressing. At least they're getting, it, you know, at least they're getting paid. I mean, you know, ugh. In a certain, yeah, yeah, well, I guess you could say at least they're getting, but, but again, part of the great tragedy to me of this is like, wait a second, and I know it's like people are going to hate this, they're going to hate the book anyway, and, you know, that's just, I'm in for a bunch of that, but one of the things I thought about was like, what would Martin Luther King make of this situation? What would Martin Luther King, who was all about nonviolence and, you know, sort of getting to a place in our culture where everybody is judged, whatever color they are, whatever superficial differences, that they are judged by the content of their character. What would he make of the fact that in, you know, economically vulnerable African-American communities, not just outside of them, not just all the guys who are essentially recruiting players and segregating young, talented players and turning them into football machines, but the fact that those communities themselves are incredibly into football and see it as this central path to salvation for you know, certain kinds of kids who, who are written off, the possibility that they would have a life of the mind, that they would uh, you know, be brilliant painters or brilliant writers or brilliant lawyers or brilliant doctors, that's written off. But the path to salvation for them is, well, maybe they'll become a great, famous athlete and specifically a football player. That strikes me as kind of heartbreaking because football specifically, as a part and parcel of it, is that it's violent. That's part of the reason it has its brute appeal. And this really does differentiate it, in my mind, from like baseball and basketball and soccer. Those are sports where there's definitely collisions and you definitely have to be tough and they're macho. But there isn't like a small car accident inside your helmet every play of those sports. And there is in football. Well, and it's like the other thing, too, that comes to mind is the way in which the NFL, to a degree that far surpasses other sports leagues in this country, has um, wrapped itself in the banner of the American military. And it's really, um, you know, they real, there's a real symbiotic relationship. And like one of the most... Uh, 
Uh, disturbing memories I have. I mean, this happens all the time at NFL games, but I've only seen it live once. Was like an, uh, a stealth bomber flyover at a stadium. And oh, yeah. I remember being there and just being like, this is fucked up. Like, I don't want to have a stealth bomber fly over my head ever, like ever. Right. And if you have a child there and like everyone's cheering and the stealth bombers, which you, you know, the thing about it is that you, you couldn't really hear it until it was on top of you. And right. so it sort of, it sort of surprised me. And then there's the noise and everyone's cheering. And I'm thinking to myself, there's something fucked up about this. Like, right. You know, and, and, and I'm here. I'm here. I'm part of right. it. I'm a paying customer. <laughs> right. You know, there's a whole chapter that's about uh, militarism. And I mean, here's the thing, Brad, like, I don't mean to come on like too strong about this stuff. It's just, I get very worked up because I, I you know, I, I think about, you know, I, I, I had, I had been sort of soaking in it for 40 years, but I hadn't really turned on the lights and said, where the hell am I? What is it? What, what is it about? And the way in which I was also shocked at how intertwined um, football is with all of these different uh, aspects of culture, whether it's race or whether it's sort of late model capitalist, nihilistic capitalist greed, or in this case, militarism and violence and sort of the tradition of America as a place where, you know, the regeneration of the spirit happens through violence, right, through the frontier, through killing the Indians and, you know, whatever that, you know, are now sort of exporting it overseas and killing whoever, uh, you know, our, our sort of strategic and economic interests dictate we should murder next. And, you know, football is, uh, a, I think, has become very powerfully a way for, especially over the past 15 or 20 years, and especially the last decade, we have these wars that I don't think most Americans really understand why we got into them and what their moral, they, they can't make sense of them. We sort of got at the beginning, well, there were terrorists and they were training in Afghanistan, so hell yeah, let's go over there. I mean, the, the psychosis that followed 9-11 was just like, somebody's going to pay, right? Right. Somebody looks like the guys who did this, right? So there wasn't a tremendous amount of thought, but the way in which we were sold on the Iraq War, forget the bogus intelligence, whatever had to be within us as a culture to say, yeah, it's a good thing to go send soldiers over there, had to be pretty abstracted from... The, the violence that was going to be carried out, both to our own soldiers and in Iraq. I and mean, you basically send a bunch of guys over there with bombs and guns to kill people and maybe get killed. And to me, we'd had a lot of practice because when we watch football, we are desensitizing ourselves to the fact that we are essentially sort of consuming as a culture something that is extraordinarily violent. Um, and it's real violence. It's not simulated violence, not grand theft auto. It's real people who are really, really getting busted up. And if you've ever spent any time around a professional football player, especially later in their life, you see it. They have been, they have been in the trenches. And to me, there were all these, like the way in which the NFL overtly, consciously uh, affiliates itself with the military and the flyovers and the events that were actually thrown, like the NFL rally that was, you know, a part and parcel of selling the war uh, in Iraq and selling that war effort. That's the conscious stuff. Wait, there it's, was a there was a rally for the NFL where we to support the war. Yeah, there was a special that was all about like uh, I write about it in the book, like this three hour special um, that was you know sort of a tribute to our troops. Um, or the flyovers that you're talking about, or the military, you know, the advertising. Like the NFL figured out really quickly, um, okay, and the and the armed forces figured out, like, wait a second, we're we're in the same business here. This is all about combat, 
and football is very much about combat. It's organized, morally coherent combat, and it's proxy combat, but it's still combat. So, you know, the armed forces figured out, like, who, who's our audience? Who, who are we going to get in this volunteer army? You know, that's why you see so much advertising for the military. So there's an economic relationship there, but there's also, as you've pointed out, like the NFL sees patriotism and militarism as a part of its brand and conformity and not questioning, uh, not morally questioning, and to some extent desensitizing yourself to the real costs of violence. That's a part and parcel of the mentality that allows us both to play football, but also just even to watch it, you know, like we've got to turn some empathy off in order for it to become acceptable. I did it when I was six years old. I mean, Daryl Stingley was paralyzed and my player, Jack Tatum, did it. And I didn't feel uh, terrible about that. And, oh, my God, I have to stop watching this. I said, oh, well, that's kind of screwed up. I hope they don't stop allowing football to happen. <laughs> I didn't think about Daryl Stingley or his family or, 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 or how horrible it was that I was watching this on, on TV and that I was okay with it. It took me you know, another four decades to sort of say, wait a second, that's not cool at all. And that person who's watching that and consuming that and okay with it, who has normalized violence, as long as it's not happening to me, is related to the person who's watching the war and watching the green, you know, the green uh, tracers and the bombs and sort of not getting that they're actual human beings that are being blown apart or maimed and that the American soldiers who come back, I mean, how much do we think really deep down other than saying thanks for your service every now and again or clapping in an airport, how much do we really think about the psychological and physical ways in which our soldiers come back wounded. Like, that's something that we've just tried to sort of put aside. And to me, that's partly, um, that mindset is an operation when we turn away from thinking about the real consequences to the players or say, well, they get paid lots of money or make any other set of excuses. Well, those soldiers, they knew what they were signing up for. It's like, okay, yeah, but they're still a human being that is now damaged and wounded, and they are morally your responsibility because you're also a human being. It doesn't even have to be an American, but if you need that, you're an American, and they're also an American. Well, that makes you. Well, I was just going to say, and there's like there's a a disturbing parallel between uh, the uh, rate of suicide, um, you know, among former NFL players, you know, NFL veterans who have been battered over the years, and soldiers who returned from war. I mean, you can't help but notice that similar pattern well part of the reason that that the nfl had to kind of contend with the fact that they were going to have to recognize the relationship between um you know cognitive i mean dementia essentially and and playing football was because famous football players kept killing themselves in these flamboyant ways and we couldn't look away because in a way football is a victim of its own success because if you're going to make junior seau into a, a celebrity, right, or Mike Webster or, you know, Dave Durson or whoever it is, when they kill themselves or, uh, you know, or, or go on national TV and talk about, like, Tony Dorsett, how he can't even remember sometimes how to get to get home from a, 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 one of his kids' sports practices, like, America is going to have to confront the fact that these are like people that are are human beings who are heroes to us, 
who are now either killing themselves or living with a really horrible uh, degenerative brain illness. Uh, so it, it's, it's, we're in this weird space where, to me, part of the reason that the book wound up being bigger than I was expecting, I don't mean like bigger, I mean it's a pretty short book, but it goes over a lot of different subjects, is because the more I looked at football, the more I said, but actually if I'm going to talk about that, then I really need to talk about what football means in terms of race and the way in which we are consenting to, put, to, to only treat people as bodies. Or I really have to look at the relationship between football and our American lust for violence and our willingness to look past the moral costs of violence and our recent history as, you know, as, as a country sanctioning wars and paying for them. You know, like you can't ignore that stuff once you sort of open the, you know, once you open that can of worms, I felt like, all right, let me at least do a full accounting. And at the same time, like, I don't want the book, I hope it doesn't feel like some big wagging finger because like when when I was finishing up the book right at the end of the book I write about like I'd, I'd written all my chapters and sort of marshaled all my arguments and I was uh, went to a reading and there was this young woman and I you know she said well what are you working on I said well, I'm working on a book about football and she said oh wow you know um, tell me about it uh, and, and and actually she said you know oh yeah I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan my dad and I watched every you know, every game and we had this special ritual we'd go through and he would go hunting and, you know, he would, he would make venison and we would eat that and watch the game. And like, I've got an Eagles hat, like right in my bag. She was ready to like run out to her car and show me her Eagles hat just to like say, I'm a fan too. And, and, and I beautifully like connected to my dad and felt this certain love that I needed to feel for him through football. And then I have to like tell her about what my book's about, <laughs> just right. see her face become increasingly distraught and contorted and just bummed out. And my, you know, the, my feeling is like, I feel terrible about, I don't want to shit on her happiness. I don't want to like ruin the beautiful thing that she has with her father, but I do want to start a conversation about why we need this particular game to feel the love that we need to feel for our fathers or our daughters or sons or whatever it is, whoever we're close to in our life. And what it means that at this particular time, you know, we are such a morally negligent country in so many ways and refuse to face up to it, refuse to really look at it and say, well, why can't we be more generous? Why can't we give more of our time and energy and love to, um, you know, preventing violence rather than consuming it as entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I want I just want to start the conversation. I don't want to say, oh, well, Boycott the NFL, boycott the NCAA, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not the point. Well, what are you doing personally? Are you going to try to cut yourself off this season? <laughs> I'm going to try. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm going to try. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to talk about this stuff a lot and probably have a lot of people who think I'm a jerk. And I don't think it would be cool for me. Like, I think ultimately, having said what I've said, I don't think I can sit there and watch games. I, I could try to rationalize it. Um, I might, you know, sort of live tweet a game for some media outlet just because I think it would be really interesting in a real-time way to talk about all these moral evasions. You know what I mean? Even sure. if they're happening, to talk about the announcers who say, oh, well, you know, you got to let them know you're there. You know, <laughs> or the, the other things they say when somebody suffered brain trauma in front of you on TV to make it okay or sanction it. So I might do a little bit of that, but I basically think, like, I pretty much... 
I don't think I can. Like, I don't think it would be okay for me to write a book that says I'm going to really look at what football is and 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 yet still be part of the system that that supports it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. I've got, it would be it would be it would be especially sad to run into you at a sports bar on Sunday. <laughs> right. It would expect, it, not that anybody would ever get to this point. You know, like I. Fortunately, I, I will never reach the point where I could be paparazzied. Right. But it would be particularly dismal and squalorous to see, like, the guy who writes against football, like, you know, with his ridiculous hat on and his crazy <laughs> Orthodox Jewish beard disguise, like, watching the Raiders get you know, shit-canned by whoever's going to kill him this year. So, and, and you know the sad thing, Brad? Like, you'll get this as a fan intuitively. If the Raiders were really good this year, I probably wouldn't have written the book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, deep down, if the Raiders were, like, ready to go to the Super Bowl and have their glory again, I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up, but, yeah, let me just, let's just let it roll this year. <laughs> See, I'm a Packers fan. I'm still on the hunt. It's going to be so tough. But uh, you have made me think uh, a lot, and you have, uh, as you often do, you've crystallized a lot of what was sort of lurking in the back of my mind but hadn't really found its form and I think it's a great book, and I think it's a necessary conversation, and it's it's just such a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you. For So thank you for spending the time. Oh, well, thank you for kind of hearing me out. And like I say, like, I don't want people to think that this is this sort of finger-wagging book. It's really, like, there's some parts, I hope, that are funny, and there's cultural critique, and it's not exactly like Candy Freak, you know. It's it's more serious than that, but, um, but you know, it it's, I did have a lot of, you know, I had a lot of stuff I had to, kind of um confront myself about i guess and so i hope it's in that way that it's written that it's much more like look i'm a part of this i've got 40 years in as a fan it's not like i'm just like overnight suddenly gonna you know become like the patron saint of of anti-football like that's bullshit what it's much more the more honest way to say it is there's deep meaning in this and some of the meaning is beautiful and sacred and some of the meaning is really dark and it all it all has to get explored so that's what i'm hoping the book does and i appreciate you know being able to talk with somebody who 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 gets it has the same affliction yeah that's for sure man well it's uh it's great talking with you i wish you luck uh as the book rolls out and i'm sure uh i'm gonna be i gotta figure i'm gonna be seeing you uh on television or at some point talking about this it seems like the kind of book and the kind of conversation that hopefully you know sports talk radio will embrace it would be great to hear you on those shows to be honest It'll be interesting to see. I don't know that that they're ready. Like, you know, I don't think I don't know that that will happen. But um, I mean, it's more likely that I'll be sort of murdered live on ESPN. (laughs) A civil discussion with Stephen A. Smith about the morality of football. But whatever, man, one way or the other, dead or alive, you'll see me. (laughs) Well, listen, Ed, uh, thanks again for taking the time and, and best of luck with the book. Hey, man. Thanks to you, Brad. It's always a pleasure to talk. Okay, guys, there you have it. That is Steve Almond. What a great uh, guest he is. Please go get his book. It's called Against Football, available from Melville House as of August 26th. You can pre-order it today. If you're listening to this after August 26th, it's available wherever uh, books are available. Against Football. Uh, subtitle, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. I forgot to mention that at the top of the show. It's a manifesto, but it's a reluctant manifesto, as I think uh, Steve uh, underscored in talking about it. So uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the official app of this program. It's free. 
It's available wherever apps are available. Here's why you get the app. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, A, it's the easiest way to listen. You download the uh, app to your device. It's free. Uh, and then you don't have to do anything. New episodes automatically upload. You have access for free to the most recent 50 episodes of this program. And then what is also great about the app is that if you want to stream the archives, the deeper archives, uh, some 250 shows, uh, you can sign up for other people premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. Two bucks a month, uh, five bucks for six months or uh, eight ninety nine for a full year of access. So go get the app, sign up for premium, support the show. That would be great. Uh, I'm still reading sports news. Got to be honest about that. I'm still reading about football, even after this conversation. I'm, I, I'm, it's going to be a weird season. I might have to turn the television off. You know? My Green Bay Packers. But uh, I feel complicit in something that is uh, damaging. I'm con I find uh, Steve's arguments persuasive. That's what I'm saying. And frankly, uh, they are arguments that I've been making to myself, which he just crystallized, you know, in his book. That's what a good writer does. So for those of you out there who are similarly uh, depressed, perhaps we can all form a support group. For those of you who are unconvinced and find yourselves enraged uh, by the mere suggestion that uh, football might be bad for us uh, in a variety of ways, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I guess you keep watching. Perhaps you, uh, you double down on uh, testosterone and violence. You know, I don't know. I, I could easily watch. That's the thing. I say all of this and I could easily be in front of the television in week one. And uh, that would say maybe not so good things about me. I'm still working it out. Uh, did I mention you can find Steve online at stevealmondjoy.com? You can also check out againstfootball.org. Uh, Steve is on Facebook. He's also on the Twitter. His handle is at stevealmondjoy at Steve Allman Joy. So go uh, follow him there. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about this some more. I'm going to ponder. I'm going to reread, try to convince myself, try to work this out with myself. I need to change my bookmarks on my uh, internet browser and get out of this mode of constantly checking training camp updates. And for those of you who are not football fans, I know that this is all weird to you, but trust me, there's something uh, deeply intoxicating about it and cerebral. Like the whole union of eggheads and meatheads, that's what I'm getting at. It's a real thing. It's not just a bunch of, uh, you know, Neanderthals uh, pounding their chest and like smashing beer mugs over their heads. So anyhow, I uh, appreciate you listening. Uh, thanks again to Steve. I will be back again uh, in just a couple of days with uh, another episode. I should mention I'm going to be going out of town later this month. My goal, as usual, is to provide shows uh, in my absence, get everything done ahead of time, make it happen. I hope that's the case. There is an off chance that uh, I will have to take a, a, you know, a couple of days off, but I'm not sure. We're going to see. I just want to throw that out there. So uh, I'll be back again soon. And uh, in the meantime, uh, just you know, watch some baseball. Go to a baseball game. It's so peaceful. <laughs>